Matthew 22, let's read verse 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you, Lord, that, that you have given us a sweet blessing, a sweet privilege, Lord, to week after week to gather around your word. And, Lord, we've got it as a testimony of, of, the, the, of our lives, Lord, over the last several years, God, that you have spoken to us through your word. And we give you praise for that. And, God, we just ask you to do it again. Lord, we, we want to live before you as men and women of integrity, as those that fear you and tremble at your word and love you. So, Lord, you're the one we're here to worship. And we want to hear from your word. Please help us. Help us to see. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's remember a little bit about the context here. So, Jesus is in the middle of a lot of conflict. A lot of conflict. If you remember, if you start back in verse 15, it says that the Pharisees began to plot. They got together to plot a way to entangle Jesus in his words. And they gave it a shot. And they failed. And then the Sadducees gave it a shot. And they failed. And now here's round three. So here's the third attempt to test Jesus and entangle him in his words. And that's, uh, that's what we just read. That's what we just read just a moment ago. I think one thing that's very clear is that Jesus is not afraid of conflict. He's not in any way afraid of conflict. I believe most men would be intimidated to silence uh, if they face these circumstances. He's got the Supreme Court of the Jewish nation coming at him, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the, the greatest scholars of the day are coming to Jesus to, to try to silence him, entangle him in his words. And most men, would be, most men would be quieted by that. They'd be intimidated by it. But Jesus doesn't seem to be afraid. He's not, he's not scared of conflict. In fact, he's a lion among men as we read this passage. And so what we see at the very beginning here is Jesus hushing the heretics. And you see that in verse 34. Read it again. Jesus hushing the heretics. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So we see here Jesus is the great silencer of all false teachers. Now try to imagine this. Um, I, would, I would imagine that the Pharisees... Hearing what happened with the Sadducees, as it says here, that, that he silenced them, that would have been sort of a love-hate thing for them. They would have hated it in the sense that they don't want to see Jesus, you know, uh, 
you know, stomping people in these debates like this. They don't, they don't like that. They don't want to see Jesus prevail, okay? But they would have, they would have, so they would have hated it in the sense of Jesus is winning, but they would have loved it in the sense of they're getting to see their political enemies, so the Sadducees and Pharisees were, were opponents of each other, enemies of each other, and they would have loved seeing their political enemies, the Sadducees, uh, getting, getting silenced, getting quieted themselves. So you imagine how many times did a Sadducee, remember that argument we looked at last week where they twisted the scripture and said, whose husband will she be in heaven? How many times had a Sadducee taken that argument to a Pharisee and, and you know, kind of put him in his place? And then, and then here the Pharisees are watching Jesus, and Jesus has a biblical answer for them, and he shuts their mouth. And I could just imagine the Pharisees over there with a little bit of joy taking notes. This is how we'll answer the Sadducees in the future. Now, something I believe we can take away from this, of Jesus silencing false teachers, is this. The church is supposed to be, the church is, 1 Timothy 3.15, the pillar of and ground of the truth. So the church holds the truth high and the church holds the truth firm. That's our job. That's what we're supposed to do. Uh, and and their churches being that is often destroyed by false teachers. And we see that all over the New Testament. Warnings against false teachers. These subtle heresies of false teachers that take a church that's supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth and they make them anti-truth. Now, that problem is not only the fault of false teachers, but it's also the fault of pastors and members that lack the knowledge and the ability to silence those that would teach false things, that would be heretics. One of my prayers, as I've kind of studied through Matthew 22, and we've been meditating on this together, one of my prayers is that God would bless us as a church. He would grow us as a church with this sort of uh, Christ-like intolerance towards heresy that we would be like that that we would grow in that so that our church continues on to be a pillar and a ground of the truth now there's a qualification you can go read uh, revelation chapter 2 verse 1 through 4 and jesus commends the church at ephesus and he rebukes them and the way he commends them is several things, and, and, and one thing, is, it's not a very popular commendation in our culture, but a commendation he gives is, 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 I commend you for this, Jesus says, to a church, I commend you for this, that you cannot bear, that you will not bear those who are evil, and you tested those that say they are apostles and they're not, and you found them to be liars. Man, that's a good quality in a church, to not be able to bear those, that evil, and to test those that are say they are apostles or to test teachings and to find out lies and heresy so that the church can continue to be the pillar and ground of the truth. So that's been a prayer of mine that we would be that as a church. And then one thing that our passage brings in today, and, and again, go back to Revelation 2, not only that we would find out the false teaching and, and, and expose it, but the thing that church got rebuked for was what? Do you remember they abandoned the love they had at first. And our passage today is going to push us in that direction. You see Jesus as the one that exposes false teaching, and yet you see Jesus as the one calling us to love God and love your neighbors yourself. So you got the Sadducees are silenced, verse 34. And then it says the Pharisees, what do they do? Look at it right there. It says they're gathered 
together. They, they do a little huddle. They gather up. It's the same thing in verse 41. So after our passage, after Jesus deals with this third attempt, verse 41 is going to say, Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, they're going to gather together again. And it was the same thing back in verse 15. They were gathered together plotting how to entangle him in his words. This really is a beautiful visual here. That here's Jesus, and you've got the scholars of the day, the religious leaders of the day, and they keep, it's like the whole passage, they keep gathering back up. How can we stump this man? How can we embarrass this man? How can we discredit this man? They keep gathering up, but they can't do anything about it. It's a beautiful picture, and you can't help but think of Psalm 2. If you remember Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? That's what this is, vain plotting. It's vain because it's Jesus they're plotting against. Why do they plot in vain? Why the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Christ, against his Messiah, his anointed. It reminds you of that as you read through this passage. So verse 35 and 36. We see the lawyer's insincere question. Let's read it again. And one of them, so one of those Pharisees, you know, that have been gathering together, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? So just think about the plain sense of what is in verse 35 and verse 36. Jesus is approached by a Pharisee lawyer or an, an expert in the law. The Gospel of Mark calls him a scribe. So he's a scribe. He's an expert in the law. He's, he's a Pharisee lawyer. And he comes with this question, verse 36. Jesus, what is the greatest command? What's the great commandment in the law? What's the greatest commandment in the law? And this question was not sincere. It says it here. It was a question to test him. It's the same thing it says in verse 15 and verse 18. They're just trying to entangle him in his words. They're just trying to test him. And so this is not a sincere question. It's a question to test him. This lawyer, he's setting himself up as judge over what Jesus has to say. So he's already got his own answer in his mind. He's this expert in the law. And he's going to ask this question, and he's going to judge what Jesus says. Rather than the right approach would be what? To come to Jesus as you are the authority. You judge what's right. I come to you. I want to know. Can you tell me what the greatest commandment is in the law? That would be the right way to come to Jesus. But instead, he's already got his thought. He already knows what he think, thinks is right. He's going to judge Jesus by his own thoughts instead of letting Jesus judge his thoughts. So he's just testing him here. Now, there's two big lessons, I think, that we can learn from verse 35 and 36. There's two big lessons that we can learn from verse 35 and verse 36. Let me mention both of those quickly. Number one, brothers and sisters, do not approach Jesus' words like this lawyer. Do not approach Jesus' words like this lawyer. You are not the judge of Jesus' words. Jesus is the king of the universe. You don't read his word and just accept the things that align with what you already think. You read his words and you get changed. You read Jesus' words and if he says something that's different than the way you think, you change your thinking. If he says something that it tells you to do something you're not doing or not do something that you are doing, you change your actions. 
You're not the judge of his words. He's your judge. He's your king. He's the one with authority, not you. So we don't live as a judge or a tester of Jesus' words, but rather we live as those under the authority of his word. That's number one. Don't approach Jesus' words like this lawyer. Number two, number two, beware of a calloused approach to the greatest two commandments. Beware of a numb or calloused approach to these two commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Beware of a calloused approach to those commands. Now, as we, we're going to get into that in more, detail, in more detail in a minute, but the way Jesus is going to answer these, this lawyer is to quote two Old Testament verses. What's the greatest commandment in the law? And he's going to quote Deuteronomy 6, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he's going to quote Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I want to encourage you as you think about those two glorious commands, beautiful commands, don't be callous. Have you ever been callous to love God, love people? You ever been callous to that? And what I mean is like, yeah, 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 we know that. I mean, you can go back in the sermon history of Gresham Community Church. I think, you know, we taught on this passage uh, 2013. I actually went and looked it up. And sure, I don't know when it was, but we went through the Gospel of Mark and Mark 12 that talks about this. We taught on it there. This is old news. We know, love God, love people. We know that. Yeah, 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 sure. That callous and sort of numb approach to what Jesus is drawing out as the greatest. We need to be aware of that sort of thing. Now, what would it be? What would cause us to move so passly past these greatest commandments and not be moved very much by it? What, what could cause something like that? A lot of things could, but one thing is this. Familiarity with it. Just being, I'm just so familiar with love God, love people, that I'm just almost numb to those commands that Jesus is highlighting. Now here's why I'm saying this in this passage. How familiar, when, when Jesus gives his answer, what's the greatest commandment? And he looks at the lawyer and says, he, he says, he quotes Deuteronomy 6, which is often called the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God. He quotes that. How familiar would this scribe have been with that text of Scripture? So familiar. If you, don't, if you don't know this, these, these uh, Pharisees, these lawyers, and these good, uh, any good Jew, they would have quoted that verse twice a day, at least twice a day. It's called the Shema. They, they, would have quote, they probably quoted this verse earlier that morning before Jesus gives them this verse as the answer. Every day, quoting that verse. They would wear this verse in these little phylacteries on their, on their head. They would post this verse on their, on their doorpost and these little boxes on their doorpost. So this command, love God, the Shema, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, they were so familiar with it, and yet so calloused, and yet so callous to it. And so, church, I want to plead with you not to be guilty of the same thing. I want to plead with you, don't be guilty of being calloused, numb to the things that we're about to dig into. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. I want to encourage you to be awakened to the glory, to the beauty, and to the significance of these two greatest commandments. Don't miss the beauty of it. Don't be callous like these men. 
Verse 37 through 40 gives us Jesus' response. Verse 37 through 40 gives us Jesus' response. Let's read it again. Verse 37. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's the Deuteronomy 6 quote. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's the Leviticus 19 quote. And he says, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So let's think about Jesus' response for just a minute. Sort of an overview of his response before we dig deeper into these commands. An overview of his response. So two Old Testament quotes, Deuteronomy 6, Leviticus 19. Love God, love neighbor. These two commandments are very connected. They're very connected. They both talk about love. One's vertical, one's horizontal. Love God, love neighbor. They're connected in the sense that Jesus said the second is like it. So you got the first commandment and the second is like it. And I believe one thing that's being emphasized there is you can't truly, you can't truly and fully love people unless you love God. And you don't truly love God if you're not loving the image bearers of God, those who bear his image, which is people. Now, 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 makes that same connection. Listen to this, 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. So they're very connected. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, don't miss the incredible importance of these commands. It is almost, probably is impossible to overstate the significance of these two commands. So just don't miss that. Verse 38, what did he say? This is the great and first commandment. This is the great commandment. The, uh, the Gospel of Mark, Mark 12, says it's the most important. That's the phrase. Most important commandment. Great commandment. First commandment. And the second one's like it. Man, this is important. And think about what we read in verse 40. All on, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Just think about what that means for a minute. On these two commandments, love God, love neighbor, hang, depend, hang all of the law and the prophets. Man, that's massive important importance to these two commandments. You, you would just try to think about that for a minute. If somebody came to you and said, hey, uh, I've, I've been uh, reading, I read all the law and the prophets. Could you please sum it up for me? Could you, sum, could you summarize all of the law and the prophets in a couple of, you know, a command or two, a couple of sentences? Could you do that for me? Now, that seems like an obvious answer to you, but only because Jesus had a brilliant answer that has stood the test of time for 2,000 years. But if you didn't know what Jesus said, somebody said, can you summarize the law and the prophets? Man, what would you say? And it shows you the significance of this. Think about that. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Hang. So those are the two commandments. And hanging off of those two commandments is all the law and the prophets. That means that these two commandments are not an afterthought summary. It's not... Okay, here's thousands of years of the law and the prophets being written. And then, huh, afterthought. I wonder how we can summarize it. Love God, love neighbor. It's not that. It's a forethought. It's God says, I'm going to create a people for my glory that love me and love people. Boom, thousand years, law and prophets being written. Man, it's glorious importance 
glorious significance in these two verses. And I say that and I, I emphasize that because we really do have a sinful tendency to miss the forest for the trees. Luke eleven forty two, Woe to you, Pharisees. You pay tithe of mint and amos and cumin. You do the little thing, but you neglect the weightier matters, and it mentions the love of God. You do the little thing. You miss the forest for the trees. You do the little thing, and you miss the love of God. We have a sim simple tendency to do that. So, brothers and sisters, don't be like that church, the, the church at Ephesus we talked about a minute ago, Revelation chapter 2. They did all kind of stuff right, and yet they abandoned love. Don't be like the church at Corinth. Did all kind of stuff right. And, and, and he says in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1 through 3, you can literally move mountains with your faith and give your body to be burned. But if you have not love, he didn't say you missed it a little bit. He said you're nothing. You're nothing. Massive consequence to missing these two commands. So please, this is, this is just my plea to not take it lightly. Don't be callous to these two commands. Okay, let's give a deeper dive into the greatest commandment. Verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, the first thing we need to do is consider what love is. That word love is really twisted in our society, right? It either gets used flippantly. You know, you can say, I love my wife, and you can say, I love college football, and it can be in the same, you know, same paragraph. So it's used flippantly, that word love. It's, it's misused, abused in all kind of ways. So we really need to understand what this word love means. Now, to get a definition of love, I actually want us to go to another place in Scripture, 1 John. You can go there with me. 1 John chapter 3. And we're going to look at verse 16 through 18 to get a definition of love and then turn it and say, what should we do towards God? What should we do towards our neighbor? 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. Now I think you see, as far as the definition of love goes, you see three parts to a definition here. Three parts to a definition. Number one, love is to lay down your life for someone, for someone else. Love is to lay down your life. And I see that in verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. How do we know what love is? And he points you to Christ. You see how he laid down his life? This is it. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives. So, so love is to lay down your life for someone. To put your life aside. To put yourself aside for another's good. This is sacrificial love. It's seen in what Christ did. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his love toward us. What do you mean? How can we see it? He demonstrates his love toward us. And then while we were sinners, that's undeserving, Christ died for us. He laid down his life for us. It's at the heart of the definition of love. John chapter 15, verse 13. It says, greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friend. Greater love has no one than this, that one would lay down his life for his friends. So love, lay down your life for someone. Now, it's not just to say you would do that. 
It's not even just to feel you would do that. But number two, second part in this definition, is love has action. Love does stuff. Maybe you could put the word deeds down if you're writing notes. Deeds. Love does deeds. And you see that in our passage. Let us, verse, excuse me, in 1 John 3, verse 18, let us not love in word or talk. Don't just talk about it. But in deed and in truth. Now notice the transition. If you look at verse 16, 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What, does, what example is given in the next verse? You would think the next verse would say, and so if your brother's about to die, you take the bullet for him. You die for him. You take his place if he's going to get you know, hurt or killed. You, you die. And you think it would say that, but isn't that such a, that's such, and that's true. But isn't that such a rare thing? Instead, it pivots from lay down your life to something real practical like sharing. You see it? Look at it, verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Verse 17. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So what does it look like? It looks like, love looks like good deeds towards the object of your love. Towards God, that would look like John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is he that loves me. Whoever has my commandments is deeds to God, is obedience to God. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. So, number one, lay down your life, sacrifice of love. Number two, do, it's not just talking about that, but it's deeds of love. But listen, this thing's also not just external. Number three, it's affections of love. Let's get into stuff about the inside, the emotions, the heart, the, the feelings, the affections of love. Now you see it again in 1 John. 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his what? His heart. He closes, what's it look like to not love? He closes his heart against him. That's getting into the affections. You close in your heart to someone is a lack of love. To open your heart to them is, is a part of love. So it's getting into the affection. Now this word heart, the, the King James uh, translates it bowels. It's literally the word from Acts chapter 1 where, uh, it's kind of gross, sorry, but where Judas commits suicide and his bowels came out. That's the literal thing. They're speaking figuratively about the inside, the, the bowels. He uh, Open up your heart. Don't close your heart. Don't close your bowels. The way the same Greek word is in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 15. And it says, his affection is for you. Talking about Titus to the church. His affection. His heart is to you. His affection is for you. Philippians 1.8. Oh, it's, it's one of my favorites. Listen. Philippians 1.8 uses the same Greek word. He, Paul says, I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ Jesus. That's the word. That's that inside stuff, the, the inside stuff of love. I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. You hear that? That's heart. It's emotion. So again, that church at 
Ephesus, Revelation 2. They did a bunch of stuff, but what were they lacking? Affections for God. You abandoned your love. They lacked love for him. They did a bunch of stuff, but felt nothing. They lacked the affections of love. Remember the lady in Luke chapter 7? And she, um, she was bowed down at Jesus' feet. And Jesus went on to say in Luke 7, she loved much. Remember that? She's an example of love. She loved much. Go back and read that story and just notice what's Jesus observing in this woman? Affections poured out. Tears poured out. You remember when Jesus wept? John 11. Listen to what it says right after it says Jesus wept. It says, so the Jews said, see how much he loved him? What they notice? Look at the affections. Look at the affections. Look how much he loved him. So to summarize, summarizing what love is, love is a sacrificial laying down of your life for another, expressed in good deeds, accompanied by the affections of love. Laying down your life, expressed in deeds, undergirded by affections of love. One more pass. Let me make one more pass at a definition. Last, last pass, I promise. Let me try to say it negatively. Sometimes it helps to say it negatively. Love is to lay down your life for another, but it's not just to say it. It's not just saying, I will die for you. But it's actually putting that into action. Real service, real care for another, real deeds. But love is not just mechanical deeds. It's not just external mechanical deeds, but it's real affections. But love is not just a feeling. And it's certainly not led by feelings. But it's laying down your life. Sometimes that looks like denying yourself. And that doesn't always feel good. The greatest commandment, so with all that in mind, the greatest commandment is to do that towards God. Brothers and sisters, lay down your life for God. Pour out obedience and deeds to God. Full of affections and love and desire and delight in God. The greatest commandment, love God. Love God. Now, it gives a clarifier. It says, with, love God how? It says, with, back to Matthew 22, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And let's think about what that means for a minute. The greatest commandment is to love God a certain way. With all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, some people, sometimes people get a little lost in what's heart, what's soul, what's mind. And there's a lot of overlap there. And they get kind of lost in the meaning of those words. Don't miss this. One emphasis you need to notice is the repetition of all. It doesn't just say love God with all your heart, soul, mind. It says with all your heart. And it's repeated again with all your soul. It's repeated again with all your mind. The idea here, this is getting to the point. Love God with all of you. With all of yourself. Love him with all you have. Love him with every fiber of your being. Love him with all of your energy. Spend it on him. Spend and be spent for him. Love him with all of your speech. Love him with all of your intellect. Love him with all of your emotions. Where are your emotions getting poured out? Man, love God with all of your emotions. Love him in every aspect of life. In all of your singing. In all of your reading. Love God. In, all, in every, all the music that you listen to, love God. In all your leisure time, in every work hour, love God. In every relationship, with all your body, with your ears, with what you do with your eyes, love God with everything you got. 
That's the picture. That's the greatest commandment. Love him with all that you have. Don't be a divided person. Psalm 86, verse 11 and 12. It's a prayer. God, unite my heart. You've heard me say that before. It means, God, don't let me be a divided person. Don't let me have a divided heart. Where this is the little block where I worship you and I give it to you, but all this is my own. Don't let me be a divided person. Unite my heart, God, to fear your name. Next verse says, with all my heart I give thanks. Don't express feelings of love towards God and not love him with your mind, with your intellect. Don't just... Love him with your mind and your intellect and show that in the word of God and know a bunch of stuff and yet be cold like a corpse. Love him with your feelings and emotions and affections. And don't do those things and just sit on your hands and do nothing. Love him with your deeds. This is, I want you to get to feel what you're being called to here. Love God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Now we're about to move to the second greatest commandment. But before we do, I want to encourage everybody here to examine yourself. Examine yourself now, but maybe even more importantly, as we leave here, maybe sometime today, sometime this week, take time to get alone in a quiet place with an open Bible and ask God to help you examine yourself here. Do you love God? Do you love God? You know, the angels are looking on, right? Scripture tells us that. Salvation, which the angels desire to look into so the angels are looking on and when the angels look on and they look at your life do they think man that's a that's a man that loves god that's a woman that loves god look at his tears look at their actions look at their singing look at their obedience look at their affections man they love god is it evident to the angels that you love god examine yourself in that Let's go to the second greatest commandment. A little deeper dive here. Verse 39. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's a quote from Leviticus 19. I'm going to go there and read that. Leviticus 19. And it's verse 18. And it's interesting, it's actually at the very end of verse 18. So I'm going to start in verse 17. Listen to this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. That's the opposite of what we're being called to do, to love. You shall not hate your brother. It's an inward thing. You hear how I said don't hate him in your heart? That same inward piece is there. Don't hate him in your heart. But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So take that biblical definition of love and pour out on other people. Jesus already dealt with this in this gospel, that neighbor means everyone, even your enemy. Not the person that lives next to you. We've already dealt with that. Jesus already dealt with that. And so take that definition of love and pour that out towards other people. Lay down your life for other people. Good deeds towards other people. Hearts of compassion and love towards 
other people. Now, a really important phrase here in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine 39 is as yourself. As yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, some people have used this verse and that little phrase to teach something like this. You have to learn to love yourself before you know how to love others. And so it ends up twisting the verse to mean something like, love your neighbors yourself. And you walk away with, focus more on yourself. And so it's a false idea. The commentator, uh, David Turner, he said this about it. I thought it was good. I'm going to read it to you. This verse assumes that one will instinctively love oneself. That instinctively word is important. You will instinctively love yourself. Okay? Then he says, psychological jargon about the necessity of loving oneself as a prerequisite for loving God and one's neighbor turns the biblical pattern on its head. And I agree with that because we got scripture that says things like, they love not their lives even unto death or deny yourself. It's not a call to love yourself, but that love for self, that, that care for yourself is instinctive. Okay? And Jesus uses that, and in Leviticus we see it being used. God uses it to say, this is how you need to love others, with that powerful, instinctive self-care that's already in you. Let me try to explain that. We all have a natural instinct to care about and care for ourselves. And this command is saying, bend that toward others. As much as you would care about yourself, you don't even have to think about it. You just do that naturally. As much as you would do that, pour that out on others. Now, forgive me, but I want to read a little bit longer of a quote here. And this is from John Piper on this subject. And I just thought it was good. And I want to, you know, feel like I couldn't say it better myself. So, so here it is. This verse, this verse, this command, love your neighbor yourself. It seems to demand that I tear the skin off of my body and wrap it around another person so that I feel that I'm that person. And all the longings that I have for my own safety and health and success and happiness, I now feel for that other person as though he were me. You understand that? that that's so natural. You've already done a hundred things this morning, maybe more, that was self-care. You didn't have to think about it. You just brush your teeth. I hope you did. Most of you probably did. You just brush your teeth, you know? Why? You care for your own teeth. You care about how your teeth, you care about how your breath smells, you talk to your friends, you know? You just, you just do stuff like that, you know? Uh, you, you wore certain clothes. Either you dressed for comfort or you dressed to look good. E e either way, you did it, it was for your own self, right? And you just naturally do that. He's saying, take that natural, powerful instinct you have there, and man, just as much as you care for yourself, care for others. Love others. Listen to how John Piper goes on. As you long for food when you are hungry, so long to feed your neighbor when he is hungry. As you long for nice clothes for yourself, so long for nice clothes for your neighbor. As you work for a comfortable place to live, so desire a comfortable place to live for your neighbor. As you seek to be safe and secure from calamity and violence, so seek comfort and security for your neighbor. As you want your life to count and be significant, so desire that, that, that same significance for your neighbor. 
As you work to make good grades for yourself, so work to help your neighbor make good grades. As you like to be welcomed into strange company, so welcome your neighbor into strange company. As you would that men would do to you, do so to them. Man, that is at the heart of it. So you notice at the very end of that quote, John Piper quotes Matthew 7, 12. Remember Matthew 7, 12? It's often been called the golden rule. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. This is the law and the prophets. Now, this is really, it's really fitting that this is connected, right? Because think about that. Love your neighbors yourself, verse 40. This is, this is uh, uh, the whole law and the prophets depends on these. Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is all the law and the prophets. It's, it's connected. So, love your neighbor as yourself is equal to... Whatever you want men to do to you, yourself, do also to them. I think that's really important. I just want to highlight one more thing out of that that I think will narrow uh, the charge you ought to feel from the second greatest commandment. Please notice that these are positive actions, positive things. Love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't say just don't hate him. It says love your neighbor as yourself. It says, whatever you want men to do to you, do to them. It does not say, don't do what you don't want to be done to you. It says, no, no, whatever you want to be done to you, do to them. It's not a negative thing, like don't do something, but it's a positive thing. There was a, I was reading a, a marriage book, and you don't have to agree with this assertion, but it's, it's helpful to understand what I'm saying. In this marriage book, the author explained that the reason, because if you notice, it tells husbands, love your wives, love your wives, love your wives. And it tells wives, respect your husbands, respect your husbands, respect your husbands. And he's digging into why are husbands told love, 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 and wives told respect, respect, respect. Why? And one of the things he gets into there is that a man's, the typical man's understanding of love is, I didn't do you no harm. I love them because I, I didn't. I didn't hurt, I didn't do nothing to, you know, I didn't cause you discomfort, I didn't, I didn't harm you, I didn't hurt you in any way, therefore I loved you. Whereas a woman's typical understanding of love is, I took discomfort from you, I brought you comfort, I want to, I want to bring you care, not just, not cause you any trouble. See the difference? One's negative, one po one's positive. Now you don't have to agree with that assertion, or not, but it is a good illustration of this. Listen. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is active. That is deeds. That is be intentional. Think about it. In fact, brothers and sisters, examine yourself on this too. Examine yourself. Is your life all about you? Or is your, are you intentional in prayer and in your life, in the way you spend your energy, the way you spend your time? Man, I want to pour out for others. I want to pour myself out for others. 2 Corinthians 12, 15, 15, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I want to encourage you to examine yourself in that. It's of massive importance. It's the second greatest commandment, like the first. If you disobey this, it's massive consequence. You can move mountains. You can, you can uh, give your body to be burned like a martyr. You could give all, you bestow all your goods to feed the poor. I'm, I'm quoting 1 Corinthians 13 here. But if you have not love, he says you're nothing. Man, it's massive consequence. Don't miss this. Examine yourself.
Last thing I want us to do is talk about more application of this. And application ought to be pretty simple, right? Not hard to find application in, the, in this text. Uh, you know, love God. That's the application. Love God. Obey that. Love your neighbors yourself. That's the application. Easy, easy to understand. But let me try to sharpen that a little bit. Did you know that love for God or love for others can increase or de decrease? Your love for God can increase. Your love for brothers and sisters in Christ can increase or it can decrease. Did you know that? And that's biblical. I'm not just telling you that by experience, although I could do that too. But that's biblical. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. He's calling them to brotherly love. He says, I know you already have that, and I'm going to encourage you to excel in it more and more. So that's love for each other accelerating more and more. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 and 10. Matthew 24, 12 says the love of many will grow cold. Do you know that your love could grow cold? It can decrease? Or the verse I keep referring to, Revelation 2, 4. They abandoned the love they had at first. It can decrease. It can increase. Now, if you know that, then there's some important things that follow. And I want, I want, to, I want to close out our time by trying to answer these questions, okay? And really, it's just kind of a group of questions that are getting at the same thing. I want to try to answer these questions. How do I, how do I increase, if I know that, the, that love can increase, how do I increase my love for God and others? I want to grow in this. Or another question. Man, my love is so cold right now. My love is so cold. How do I provoke myself to love? God and love others. My love feels so cold. How do I provoke myself to love? Or one more. My love is burning hot right now for God and for people. Man, it is. How do I keep it from decreasing? How do I, how do I keep it from diminishing? How do I do that? And so really, I want to give answers to that, those kinds of questions. How do you increase your love or keep it from decreasing? And I want to do that by giving you four uh, practical applications or four practical to-dos that should help you to provoke yourself to love. They, they should help you to cultivate your life so that in your life what you're growing is a heart that loves God and loves people. So these are some, these are some cultivation practical to-dos. Number one, brothers and sisters, this is, this is the practical. Number one, strive to see the love of Christ. So you got, you know, love towards God. We love God. Love towards others. But what about God's love towards you? Let's talk about that for a minute. I need you to be able to do this command to love God and love others. You need to see with your spiritual eyes his love for you. You need to see it. You need to strive to see it. Now listen carefully to this. Listen very carefully. Love God and love people is not... The summary of Christianity. Love God and love, and I know that's a popular thing to say. Christianity is just all about love God, love people. No, it's not. That's the summary of the law. That's what our passage tells us. So love God, love people is not the summary of Christianity. It's not just all about 
love God, love people. But you know what it is all about? It's about God's love toward us. It's about Christ's love towards us. That's what it's all about. That's getting closer to the heart of the summary of the gospel. Jesus' love for us in the gospel. Now, I don't want to just say that. Listen to this. This is 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Listen. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God's love manifests through Jesus coming to save sinners. Listen to this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is love. Not that we love him, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath bearer for our sins. Man. That's getting to the heart of Christianity, not love God and love people. In other words, the message that is of first importance, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8, the message that's of first importance, most important message, is not the command to love God and love others. It's the announcement that Christ has loved you through the cross. That's the most important message. So your love, and here's what this means. Here's why I'm saying this. Your love for God, greatest commandment. I'm not saying it's not important. It is. But your love for God is a reflex. It's a reflex. We love, 1 John 4, 19, because what? Because he first loved us. Our love is a reflex because he first loved us. If you could just see his love for you, man, your heart would pour out in love for him. You want to provoke yourself to love for God? You need to see the love of Christ. You need to meditate on the gospel. Dig into the word. See who Christ is. See what he's done. And do it throughout your entire life. You'll be doing it through eternity. And grow in your knowledge of the love of Christ. And you'll grow in your love for God. Now, your love for others is an imitation. Ephesians 5.2 says, walk in love as Christ loved us. Our love for each other or for others is an imitation. The degree to which you can see the love of Christ gloriously is the degree to which you will love others. So the practical exhortation here is, brothers and sisters, see the love of of Christ, and the more you see it, the more you'll love like Christ. Number two, it's a simple one. Brothers and sisters, pray. Pray for this. Make this a consistent prayer. Be persistent, like that persistent widow that just bothered the judge over and over again. Cause my heart to love you more, Lord. Cause my heart to love other people more, Lord. Go to him in prayer. And go to him in faith. And here's why I say that. This is the, there, there are things that we ask God that we don't know if it's his will or not. But there's some stuff that we bring to God in prayer. And we know this is his will. So we pray in absolute faith. Don't you know that God wants to increase your love for himself? He wants to increase your love for others if you're here and you're in Christ. So go to him in faith. This is the kind of prayer he answers. Ask him for it. Lord, increase my love. Number three, 
I want to encourage you to the discipline of submissive Bible reading. The discipline, I'm calling you to a discipline here of submissive Bible reading. And what I mean there is no matter, it doesn't matter how you feel, no matter how you feel, be disciplined daily to read your Bible with an intent just to obey whatever said. Doesn't matter how you feel. Read the Bible, just be disciplined. Read the Bible with an intent to obey whatever you see there. Don't be led by your feelings, but lead your feelings with the truth. Now, if your love is cold, you need to provoke yourself with God's word. So it doesn't make sense to say, I didn't read the Bible because my heart just wasn't in it. Well, your heart won't get in it without you going to God's word. Do you understand that? you got to provoke yourself with the discipline of the word of God to provoke yourself to love for Christ. This is where you'll see Jesus. This is where you will see his promises. This is where you'll see his glory. This is how you see Christ, the love of Christ. Now, this discipline is not the ultimate goal, right? I don't want you to just be disciplined but have cold hearts. It's not the ultimate goal, but that discipline of reading your Bible with an intent to obey whatever you see, that discipline will carry you into many seasons of delight in God and love for God and hunger for Him. A prayer I've often prayed is Psalm 119, verse 32. It says this, I will run the course of your commandments. That's discipline. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. God, I just want to obey you. I just want to go to your word and obey you. God, enlarge my heart. Number four and last. Brothers and sisters, be immersed. Immersed in the life of the church. Be immersed in the life of the church. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.5 says, One of the aims of public charges or, or public preaching is love. Be immersed in the church. One of the aims of what's going on right now, what, what's the aim? The aim is, oh, that you would love God more, that you would love each other more, that you would love God more. That you would love. That's one of the aims of what's happening right now. Be immersed in the church. One of the aims of fellowship, Hebrews 10, verse 24 and 25, it says, consider, consider how to stir one another up or provoke one another to what? To love and good works. Man, this, don't immerse yourself in the church and the fellowship of the church, the brothers and sisters provoking each other to love, preaching this provoking to love. Immerse yourself in this stuff. If your love has grown cold, you need more of the body of Christ, not less. And be diligent. This could be a charge to each one of us as brothers and sisters in a local church. Be diligent to be a provoker. Be provocative. Be a, be a, be a provoker by always striving through different means to provoke the people that you love to more love for Christ. Point them to the word. Point them to what God's teaching you in the word. Encourage their souls. Pray for them. But provoke them to love. Be immersed in the body of Christ. Let's pray that the Lord help us to do this. Father, thank you so much for letting us come to your word and meditate on it. And Lord, we, we accept. And Lord, you don't need us to accept it, Lord, but we do. We accept these commands on our life. Lord, we want to be those that love you with all our heart and soul and mind. 
And we want to be those that love our neighbors, ourselves. God, I pray that you would, you would deliver us from self-centeredness. Deliver us, Lord, from being self-focused. And God, let us turn our eyes with worship and praise and singing and prayer and obedience. God, help us to turn our eyes with affections towards you, our God. And Lord, I pray that that love for you, Lord, would be spilled over into this world, God. That you would make us those that don't just love in, in word or talk, but those that love in deed and truth. Lord, help us, please. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see more of the love of Christ, your love toward us, Lord, so that we can imitate you and be provoked to love others more. God, make us faithful to read your word and be diligent in your word. And God, I pray that you would produce in us, you would produce through that a people that love you. God, I pray that you'd help us to stir each other up constantly. Consistently, consistently, Lord, stirring each other up to love and good works. Lord, we know, we know we need your help for this. And we praise you, God, for your, your goodness to us and your willingness to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.